This parable, as it is set up in Luke, is to point out one thing. No matter where we might be, even now, in some level of lostness, God loves us greater than our lostness. Have you uh, noticed that even as we go through the parables, even as we go through uh, the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus keeps changing perspective, keeps changing angles to give you not a different truth, but another angle of the same truth. And the parables, as we're concentrating on for the next week or two, uh, deal with a bundle. They come in bundles. He never just seems to give one. They're in this uh, uh, kind of multifaceted thing where they're focused to one and then focused to the other, even though they're all real, even though they're all true. And the bundle of parables, the theme for the ones we're looking at today, deal with the word lost. They deal with the word lost. God's response to lost. And we're going to, what's very intriguing about this, we're looking at one set of bundles in Luke. Next week, we'll look at the same parables in Matthew, but because there's a different emphasis. So what's the emphasis here? Well, let's, let's set it up. Here's how this starts. Luke 15, 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. So there's part of our answers to some basic Bible study questions. Who's speaking? Who's he speaking to? But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now there's two words that we need to, uh, I've got two Bibles up here and I was going to do the same thing. If I move them around, is one less real than the other? No, they're always just as real. No matter which one you're looking at, they're just as real, just as true. And that's what's going to go on in this bundle of parables. Uh, there's two words in here, and the setup that sets up the words is this. We've got a mix of people. We have some church people. We have some people who are really not too religious, but they happen to be there. And then we have the religious professionals. And those are the guys that are really setting up where Jesus is going to go here. The scene opens uh, with not the words of Jesus, but with the religious professionals. And in these two words that get thrown out in the muttering starts with this, the word he welcomes. He welcomes the sinners. Welcome in that Greek was this Jesus gave full access of himself to whoever these sinners are. He allowed them, he received them to himself. He accepted them as a person to himself. Sinners, the words used a little differently from the Hebrew context and we use it today because you could have, we could, I've seen it in churches, uh, something out there, all sinners come in, we are all sinners and we have no trouble with that. We say, yeah, we understand. but. In the Hebrew context, and that transferred to what the Greek was, the verb was hamartano. It means to miss the mark, as in archery, or it means to miss the point, to be mistaken. 
Pastor Chris comes up, gives you a really good sermon, and, and you come up with something really weird, and you say, you missed the point. So missing in that way, or to miss the path, as in to wander away, and you're off the path, or to miss God's law, to not have a share in it, to be dispossessed. That's what sinners are. Sinners are missers. That's what the word is. Literally translates to the word missers. And Jesus was receiving to himself all these missers. Now, as we go through the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, we learn that Jesus comes to uh, take all the traditional thinking at the time and turn it on its head. Uh, because Not because he's turning it on his head, he's actually turning it right side up. Uh, they're the ones who have it upside down. Because in the culture in which Jesus is speaking, the religious leaders would simply say that if you are a misser, you are a loser. And God hates losers. God hates missers. God hates sinners. Think of the average people sitting there listening. Maybe if it was us, we started this morning and said, if you could have one thing this morning, and you know, whatever word that you came up with, there is the hope that God loves you enough that he may grant you that. Imagine growing up, though, in a culture that was very stringently religious, but said, if you're not in line with this, you're missing. And if you're missing, God hates you. God hates you. And that was at the core of the religion. And this Jesus shows up and he says, nah, you get this all backwards. You get it backwards. God doesn't hate the lost. Loves the lost. And then he goes into multiple focuses to get the point across. Everyone is nuanced in a different way. The three parables that he bundles together don't say exactly the same thing, although they come to the same uh, big table of truth. They come to the same answer. And so the first focus, the first picture he sets up is the lost sheep. I almost borrowed Pam's hat because she's sitting back there with a totally authentic sheep. Of course, it could be goat, but it is sheep, right, Pam? So we could. We could have Pam be our lost sheep in here. But this is how the parable starts. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over the one sinner who repents than over the 99 persons who didn't need to repent. Where's he going with this? How were they hearing this? And I was thinking of Kevin, because Kevin, you, you mentioned this one time. You said, you know, sheep are not very smart. And not only Kevin, Kevin probably worked with them, but this is a herding culture. They know, even if you're not a, sheep, a shepherd yourself, you know about sheep. They're not very smart. 
Uh, if we thought of them in human terms, rather than stupid, I think we'd say they're foolish. They're foolish. They just do foolish things. They, they get out there, they're, they're eating away, and they just wander off somewhere. It says, what are you doing? You know, you're just being a, a foolish sheep. And probably the first question that would arise in, in a person's mind is they're hearing Jesus loves the sheep, that the shepherd loves the sheep. They're thinking, does somebody that foolish even deserve to be rescued? Does somebody that foolish even deserve to be rescued? Now, I'm full disclosure, totally honest. Maybe you're different than I am. Maybe you're a better person. But when I see somebody do something really foolish, my first in inclination in myself is, you get yourself into it, you get yourself out. If you're going to be foolish, don't blame me. That's, that's kind of on you. But that's not what happens in the story, whether they deserve it or not. Now, another thing people knew in this culture was that uh, shepherding, caring for sheep was a community affair. Most people, the average person, didn't own that much livestock. In the village, everybody had a few sheep. So it made sense what they would do is everybody would gather all the sheep together for the village. Some belong to you, some belong to me. We team up as shepherds and we take the whole flock out to wherever we were going. But the ownership was to different people uh, involved in there. It was a community affair. So if we set out and do that, we know that there's, it's in numbers. There's a number of sheep. There's a number of people taking care of it. And this sets up the whole tone once we understand that for the parable. Because if we just look at it at face value and we say, oh, Jesus just deserted 99 sheep to take after and look for one. To me, that says, wow, God's compassionate, but he's reckless at the same time. He's not, he's not very responsible if that's what he does. That's not the way they would have heard this. Because in community, since it was, even though your sheep were there, there was a team of shepherds watching this flock. Now, sheep did stray off. And the person who would go looking for the sheep would be, and I find this in every parable, if you notice this, is there's ownership. The guy who owned the sheep would go off looking. And they had a motto or a credo when they went off looking for their sheep. It would be, come back with the sheep alive, or at least come back with the remains. Don't come back without some proof that it was found. And they would go, and it would be hours, it might be days, but this guy would go out and he would continue looking and looking and looking until he found that sheep. Now, he didn't desert the 99. He left them in a certain level of care with under shepherds, if you will. But even beyond that, sheep are herding animals. And, if there's, and this is important in the whole idea of community. They're herding animals. There is safety in numbers, right? Safety in numbers. There's safety in the community. There was a community of shepherds. There was a community of sheep. The reason this sheep was, and you know, this plays back to Solomon's wisdom, if you think of it. I can imagine those people there listening because everything was shorthand to the Old Testament when they used particular turns of phrase. 
it probably make them think of Proverbs 11:14, Where there is no counsel, the people fail, but in the multitude of counselors is safety. In the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Safety in community. Did you ever notice this about church? Somebody is, maybe their faith is getting a little cold. In some way, they're spiritually starting to get into trouble. They tend to pull back from the community. They, they tend to isolate. All of a sudden, hey, I haven't seen Joe or whoever for a number of weeks, maybe months. Wonder what's happening. And you know they're out there on their own. But in the parable, the implication is there is safety in the community. This sheep is lost from community. He's out there. He's out there somewhere on his own. And when a sheep is off on its own, the devil's like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. And that sheep will become a tasty morsel. You will become a tasty morsel. I will become a tasty morsel. But the shepherd loves the sheep so much. He, he, he has such ownership, investment in the sheep. He goes, if it takes days, he's going to go and find that sheep. He cares that much, even though it's the sheep's fault. Even though he is out there lost because he was foolish. But the shepherd loves the sheep that much. What do you call it in religious terms when there is rescue and favor that is not even deserved? Grace. This is the picture of grace. Shepherds in the physical form illustrate grace all the time. He's saving the sheep, not because it deserves it, because it is worth that much. Now, the shepherd goes out. Uh, it may be in the middle of the night. It may be some inconvenient hour. But there he comes, 3 o'clock in the morning, with this sheep over his shoulders. Everybody was wondering, would he find the sheep? Would he find him? In he comes, victorious. Ah, the thing is still alive after three days. We were sure it was dead. But no, it's alive, and he's got it on his shoulder. He's coming in. Everybody's saying, hey, yay, it's up. And they're getting up 3 o'clock in the morning. Everybody's celebrating this precious animal that was saved. It's the way it is in heaven. The focus then changes from the sheep lost to community to coins. It changes from 99 and 1 to 10 and 1. So we move into the lost coin. It starts like this. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, we move from this whole thing of value of the individual in community to the intrinsic value of the individual, him or herself. 
Back in the day, coins were made out of gold or silver, copper. They were made to a certain weight. Why was a coin valuable? Because it was made out of gold, silver, or copper. It was valuable simply because of what it was made out of, precious metals. And this was universally precious. Everybody valued this, and the potential was unlimited. If you had enough coins, you could buy anything. If you had enough coins, you could do anything. Potential in the intrinsic value, just because of what it is. And the focus of Jesus was this. Even the lost are precious simply because of what they are. The lost are precious simply because of what they are. They are meant to be children of God. They are meant to be with the owner. We are unlimited in potential when we grasp the intrinsic value we have to God. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do how many things? All things. But there is a catch through him who strengthens me. My value is intrinsic and it's based but yet in the one who owns me. It's an interesting story, isn't it? Because we know we're talking a a patriarch society here. Women uh, weren't mentioned that much in stories and teaching that much, but it's definitely a woman here and it's for a very specific reason that she's mentioned. The impression of all those people hearing this would be a bride. They would be thinking of a bride, a coin, 10 coins. Here's how it worked in the culture is that as part of the dowry, uh, a, a woman would receive these coins and the coins would be turned into a headdress. It was almost like a wedding ring. And so the value of the bride was literally worn on her head. You know, the more coins, right? Some of them are two rows of them, you know, all kinds of coins. But the value of the bride, her intimacy with who gave the coins, who owned them and gave them, was was all tied up in these coins. Can you imagine, uh, ladies, take it today, if you lost in your ring, maybe a whole wedding ring, or maybe just a main stone in your ring. Is that not a disaster? Now, let me ask you, who is it the biggest disaster for? Somebody just newly married and they had the ring for a day or for the bride who has been married for 50 years and that ring represents 50 years of intimacy. It's, it's really valuable to the new bride, but it's irreplaceable to the, to the seasoned bride, to the, to the longer wife. Love plus time, love plus time. There is a time involvement, this implication of time. God loves in time. Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. God loves you in the aspect of time. And if that's not enough, Paul puts it this way, 2 Timothy 1.8, God who has saved us and called us, 
saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. That's how long we've been a coin in the headdress of Jesus. That's how long we've been valued. Time plus love. The intrinsic value. You are valuable to God just because of who you are, what you are, meant to be his from before time began. Boy, doesn't God love the lost? Doesn't he love the lost? You are gold to God simply because of who you are. Now, we're talking precious metal so we can stretch the analogy a little bit because just because you're a precious metal doesn't mean you won't be going through refining fire. In fact, it's almost guaranteed you will. But why is precious metal put through refining fire? It's so that you shine even brighter. God isn't putting the flame to you because he hates you. It's because he loves you. He knows how bright you can be. He knows what refinement can do. So the Christ follower in just the first two parables is precious in community, even as an individual, and they're precious simply because of who they are and, and themselves. And then there's the third parable that comes in, and it's one that's you are precious in blood or in family, the lost son, the lost son. Now this parable, man, <laughs> this is so rich. This is so big. We could do a whole series on everything that happens in this. But I want us to concentrate on one part of it that we tend not to concentrate on too much. The father. Just the father. How the people at the time understood and heard this in regards to the father. Luke 15, 11, And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to the father, Father, give me... Um, the share of property that is coming to me, and he divided his property between them. Whole lot said in these two words, and it was scandalous. It was shocking. In that day, uh, wealth wasn't so much liquid assets, it was in your property. So if you needed buying power, what you would tend to do is you would sell some property that you own. Now, uh, to sell property for the point of inheritance while the parent, the father was still alive was unheard of. You'd, that isn't something you would do. Basically, the son is saying, hey, dad, let's pretend you're dead and you give me uh, my share of, of what I would have got. Not only that, he's the younger son. He's like, what do you think you have a right to anyway? But this is what he does. It was scandalous. It was so disrespectful, it was scandalous. Now, I wanted to give us a handle on how respect of the father was expected in the culture at the time, these people hearing it. Um, there was a, a rabbinical tale, one from the, from the Talmud, one that they would know just as much as you know this parable, 
And it would have come to mind as Jesus was speaking. And um, uh, the parable goes like this. This rabbinical parable. Uh, It goes like, (coughs) excuse me. Uh, Some rabbis wanted to buy a very extraordinary jewel that was uh, for the breastplate of the high priest. And there was a renowned jeweler who had the best possible jewel uh, by the name of Dhamma ben Nisana, uh, which would translate to Dhamma, son of Nisana. But the key to the jewel chest where all the inventory was kept was with the father, Nisna, under his pillow, and he happened to be sleeping at the time. So the rabbis offered Dhamma a very handsome amount of money for this jewel, and Dhamma says, I cannot sell you the jewel. And they say, why not? And he says, my father is sleeping, The key is underneath his head. I will not wake my father. It is disrespectful. So the rabbi said, well, we'll offer you twice as much for this jewel. To which he replies, no matter how much you offer, I will not go in and wake up my father. It is too disrespectful. So the rabbis leave and they go back to the high priest. And the high priest says, go back to him again, offer him three times the amount you offered. And so the next day they come back and they offer three times the amount for this jewel. This time the father is awake and he says, sell them the jewel at the original price. Too disrespectful, no matter what the amount, to wake one's father when he was resting. Can you imagine then the story where you come and say, Dad, let's pretend you're dead. Give me all all that uh, would be coming to me. There was, this would be such a level of disrespect. There's actually a term uh, and a practice they had called kareth. And in this, it was actually the divorce of a member of a village from everybody else in the village. So not only should the father have cut him off, the entire village, and that's what the word kareth meant, it meant to cut off, they would cut off this person from the village, never to return, he is now dead to the village. Uh, Another meaning of the word kareth is this, and it fits the parable really well, extinction of the soul, extinction of the soul. It was a formal ceremony where this person was literally put out. So the father doesn't do that. And it's disgraceful for what the son asked. And the story gets around because for the father to give him his inheritance, he has to sell land. Further disrespect, further disgrace on the father. The father doesn't cut him off. Even more disgrace on the father And off goes this son, and we know how the story goes. There's a whole lot of interesting um, uh, nuances we could get in there. But we do know this. The son comes back, and he must have been really, really desperate because he would have been so shunned, not just the father, but the entire village where he lived. So he comes up with a plan. 
If we had a chance to go in with this, we'd find out when it says he came to himself, that really wasn't his point of repentance, but story for another day. But he does come up with a plan. Hey, I know I can't go back as a son, but maybe, just maybe, if I go back and say, hey, I'll be your slave, maybe they'll let me back into some level of fellowship with the village. And we know what happens after that is that when he does come, the father, even though this would have been disrespectful or a disgrace on him again, he lifts up his, his um, garment and runs to the son who should be dead to him, who should be totally cut off. And then Jesus does Hebrew shorthand. And he throws in a phrase that is incredible in the Old Testament. He says this, he says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. Everybody who was listening would have known this renowned Psalm of 139, verse two. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. But behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Despite, and this is where Jesus is going with this third one, where the blood runs so deep in the family, despite the scandalous level of disrespect for the father, the father waits for the son. Unlike the other two, he doesn't actively go because in this one, the son goes, he must wait for the son to return. He didn't actually accidentally wander off like the sheep. He wasn't lost by some misfortune like the coin, but he intentionally lost himself. No excuse. All just greed and rebellion going on. He stands in a stark contrast to the eldest son, who does stay home, but has no more love for the father, just a begrudging sense of duty. And we see how that comes up in that parable. I love the way Vernon McGee, anybody here still, you date yourself, but J. Vernon McGee still has a podcast, wonderful thing. But he quotes and, and sums it up like this. He says um, that the father had actually lost two sons. He lost one because he was too bad and the other because he was too good. Isn't that like us in the church sometimes? We're just too good in our duty, but maybe not so much in our love. Maybe sometimes we're like the other. We're self-indulgent. So self-indulgent or self-righteous, not too much love. The only person in the entire story who truly loves, and it's proven through his response to disrespect, is the father. 
The Father is the only one who really loves. And he loves in the story as we understand the culture to scandalous levels. How can the Father actually still connect with these boys after this? He loves them that much. The sheep is lost in foolishness, but it is owned by the shepherd and it remains precious. The coin is lost in some misfortune, but it is owned by the loving bride and it is still precious. The son is lost through scandalous disrespect, but he is still owned and remains so precious. God's love is greater than our lostness. His love is greater than our lostness. His love is too wonderful for me. It, it's too high to, to grasp. Who can, who can understand the reality of it? But it is real. In all cases, it is real. How would it change for you or me if we fully absorbed how God treasures us? How might it change our sense of joy in having a faith at all? How might it change us in our sense of security in a very, very crazy, hostile world? How much would it change us in our desire to do more for him? Not out of a sense of duty, but out of a sense of just love. What season are you in? You know, we know this was said to all those missers out there, but the truth is we all tend to miss even after we are owned by the Father. Maybe in a season we are that person who is foolish and we've just been wandering further than we should. Maybe, maybe we're someone who we've lost sight of the true value that we really have because we are God's, simply because we are gold. Maybe we are the son. God, you know, I've done enough for you now. Give me my inheritance now. Where might we fit in all of these things? This parable, as it is set up in Luke, is to point out one thing. No matter where we might be, even now, in some level of lostness, God loves us greater than our lostness. And he will do all he can to bring us in. some point, we have to to do our part as well in receiving. We're not finished with this parable because we've looked at, or these, this bundle of parables, because we've looked at one gospel. Now, my prayer would be that through this week, it would sink into how valuable you are, and consequently, other people you know, how valuable you are to God. So then we move into another gospel, same truth, different application.